If you turn with me to the book of Zechariah. Old Testament book of Zechariah. And you can also stick a finger over in the Gospel of Luke as well. Uh, by the way, I had a great time uh, hanging out with you guys last night at Family Meal. It's, it really is one of my favorite things that we get to do. And so thanks for everybody uh, who came and who brought food. I hope it was uh, a great time for you as well just to enjoy um, this community that the Lord has blessed us with. And uh, I'm excited as we see even newer folks stepping into this community as well. We had a newcomer's luncheon this last Sunday, uh, which was super encouraging as well. And so um, just so thankful for you guys. Uh, this is week five of our study of the prophet Zechariah as a part of our uh, multi-month study of the Old Testament minor prophets, and uh, we're getting real close to the end here. We've got just a few weeks left in uh, this series called The Hidden Prophets, and as we get into the final sections of this book, the book of Zechariah, uh, we turn from seeing uh, these highly metaphorical dream visions, which is what we've been talking about over the last few weeks, to seeing a series of prophetic oracles that relate to the coming Messiah and his coming kingdom. And uh, just, to, just to remind you, this book basically started with a series of eight prophetic visions. We said that those visions form what's called a chiastic structure, which we talked about in previous weeks. But then last week, we looked at what was essentially a ninth vision uh, that was sort of a summation of everything that had come before. And in that summation vision... A priest and a king would sit on the throne of Israel, according to Zechariah. And that was something unprecedented. That had never happened before. And yet Zechariah said that was what was to come. And so we said that this was all pointing to Christ, this messianic figure uh, that both Zechariah and also the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah called the branch. This idea that there is a branch coming, and he is going to be this priest king who will sit on the throne of Israel and who will restore the fortunes of Israel. From there, though, in the book of Zechariah, the prophet returns briefly to his original message that began this entire book, reminding the people that if they are not faithful to the Lord then they're just like their ancestors and that they may potentially face consequences as well. And, and if you want to see, Zachariah says, if you want to see the things that I've been declaring to you, that the Lord has been using me to declare to you, then you have to be obedient to God. Then today, uh, the book ends, uh, starting today, the book ends with two sets of what Tim Mackey calls images of the messianic kingdom. So up to this point, as we said, Zechariah has told us there is a branch coming, there is this Messiah coming, and then the final parts of this book, the final chapters, depict what this coming messianic kingdom will be like. Um, and these final sections are a bit of a departure from the rest of Zechariah, but I think, I think the thread here 
is that these are pictures of what the people can look forward to if they remain faithful to the Lord. And in many ways, they're pictures of what we can look forward to as well if our faith is in Christ. So we're going to look at some of the first section today, which includes chapters 9 through 11. And then next week, we're going to wrap up this book by looking at parts of chapters 12 through 14. And so the first part that we'll look at today has to do with this coming messianic king, Christ. And the second part has a great deal to do with the new Jerusalem that this king will usher in. So let's look at today's text. And spoiler alert, what we're about to read may sound very familiar to you because it has long been regarded not only as biblical prophecy, but specifically as messianic prophecy, prophecy concerning Christ. And this is one that we read often around the time of Easter. And as we're reading this morning, just see if you can pick out the specific moment in the life of Jesus that this passage of Scripture is foretelling. All right, so Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. He shall rule. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will pro protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people, for like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young, young men flourish and new wine the young women. And this is the word of the Lord. All right. What is this moment? at least in the first part of this text, for telling? What is the moment in the life of Christ that this is pointing to? It's the triumphal entry. Yeah. Turn there with me real quick, Luke 19. Luke 19, one of the things that we see in the story of Jesus to note was that um, he didn't fulfill prophecy in sort of an accidental or absent-minded kind of way. Instead, Jesus of Nazareth, he didn't just happen, uh, in other words, to like coincidentally fulfill hundreds of messianic scriptures. 
Um, no, we get the sense in Scripture that he was deeply mindful of the importance of his fulfillment of all of these things. So when it comes to this moment, known as the triumphal entry, Jesus was intimately aware of the prophecy that we just read. And what you will see as we read this is when he enters the city of Jerusalem, this is something that he has orchestrated. So as to fulfill this prophecy. So look with me, Luke 19, and this isn't going to be on the screen, Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. It says, when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, uh, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as had been told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on it, uh, throwing their cloaks on the colt, Jesus sat on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So this is a fascinating moment to me in the story of Jesus. But, but why is it so significant? What's interesting to me is just Holy Week in general, that week leading up to the resurrection, um, because Jesus somehow goes from this moment, this triumphal entry moment, people laying down their cloaks, uh, people uh, laying palm branches on the ground. This is one story that is found in every single gospel, by the way. But he goes from this moment of celebration of people uh, declaring him to be the king to just a few short days later, mass crowds instead saying, crucify him. Like it is, it is a full week. It is a whirlwind week. And it is fascinating to me. It's head spinning. And yet um, it was the moment that was set to happen before the foundation of the world and had been foretold through the prophets, including Zechariah, for hundreds of years. And, and what always gives me pause is that the ones here who don't see Jesus for who he is are seemingly the most religious of them. The Pharisees. The Pharisees are the conservative religious people of their day. In many ways, they are the Bible thumpers of their day in that they knew the Old Testament scriptures intimately. Um, if, um, if anyone in the crowd knew the Messianic prophecies, it would have been the Pharisees. And yet they are the ones who don't recognize him. They are the ones standing on the sidelines going, can you believe this guy? 
this guy, this guy thinks he's a king. Like he's not, he's not denying what all of these people are saying as they call him a king. He's not rebuking them. That's why they said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And what did Jesus say? Man, even if I shut them up, the rocks are going to cry out that I am the king. But if anybody should have recognized him, it should have been them. And yet when you read, with this in mind, when you read the whole text in Zechariah that we read this morning, Jesus is a guy sitting on a colt, but there are a lot of other things going on in the text in Zechariah that we don't necessarily see here in the triumphal entry. Um, Look with me at verse 10 in Zechariah. Zechariah 9, verse 10. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. So Zechariah says that the Messiah will end the need for Israel to do battle. You're not going to need your chariots anymore, guys. You're not going to need your war horses anymore. You're not going to need your battle bows anymore. Why? Because this messianic king will speak peace to the nations, and his rule of peace will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So, I, you know, I often say I have a lot of empathy for Jews who believe in God, but, but who don't believe in Christ. Because when you read the Old Testament, just on the surface, it really can seem at times, when you, especially when you read the prophets, it really can sound like the Messiah is going to be a human king. Right, that the Messiah is going to be this David-like king, this military leader who's going to be so incredible and so charismatic and so effective that he is going to come in and he's going to put an end to the need to wage war. Like, like the world is just going to be so at peace and, and his reign is going to be so expansive that, that no one would dare challenge him. But when you, when you really step back and look at the big picture of what's happening in the text, that doesn't really make sense. This idea that this is just a human who's coming who will have a human rule and reign. So consider the implications for what we're reading for Jesus in his day in relationship to this prophecy. First of all, The Messiah is a conquering king unlike any other, but for some reason, he is riding into town humble and lowly, not just on a donkey, but on a baby donkey, right? So our king, this this seemingly great military leader who's going to vanquish all other enemies and bring peace from sea to sea is riding into town on a baby donkey, not a war horse, right? Not a chariot. And yet somehow he's going to bring about what Zechariah has described. 
Yet in Zechariah's day, the Persians were in charge. Uh, in Jesus' day, when, when Luke's writing, the Romans are in charge. Those were significant, sophisticated, well-armed superpowers. And, and first of all, who in human history has ever experienced the kind of political peace you know, like geopolitical peace described by Zechariah. Nobody has ever really experienced what Zechariah is describing. The kind of peace where we don't even need weapons anymore, right? Everything's so ironed out. And, and second, for any who have experienced a level of peace in their time, who hasn't attained that through military might of some form? Throughout human history, that's been the, that's been the way. That's the way now. Why does no one attack America, right? It's because of our military. It's because of our prowess. It's because of our wealth. It's because of our weaponry. So this king is riding into town, not on a horse. He's riding into town on a baby donkey, and somehow he is going to defeat or remove or subjugate the prevailing superpowers seemingly without weapons, Right? Because it's clear in, in the text of Zechariah, the weapons that he uses are, are sort of metaphorical weapons. And then he will rule the whole world, and people will experience a kind of peace that has never been known in human history. Like, this prophecy doesn't make sense if this is a human being who's riding in and stepping onto the throne. At least on the surface, to someone who is thinking in the most literal terms, um, this just is strange. And this is especially true when you compare this full prophecy in Zechariah to Jesus' triumphal entry. Yes, Jesus comes in riding on a colt. But other than that, world peace isn't immediately established, is it? Right? It isn't ushered in. Weapons aren't done away with. And, and then a few days later, this conquering, peace-bringing king is killed by many of the same people, supposedly, who laid down their cloaks in the road. So what's, what's happening here? What's going on? Um, I want to return to a concept that we talked about back during Advent um, and explore it here. And this concept is called the already but not yet. The already, but not yet. The writer of Hebrews describes this for us in chapter 2 of Hebrews. And what he says is, For it was not to angels that God subjugated the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjugation under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjugation to him, he left nothing outside of his control. So the writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus has full control that God has given him. At present, look at this, at present we do not yet see everything in subjugation to him or in subjection to him, but we see him 
who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus has done something significant and something conquering through his death. And in some way, he, through his death, has tasted death for everyone. But what he says is, we don't see this fully right now, even though it is a present reality. Even though Christ has conquered death, even though he has tasted death so that we don't have to, and that is true, he also at the same time says, we don't experience it fully right now. It is already, but not yet. Here's a definition that I'll give you for this concept. The theological concept of already, but not yet, holds that believers are actively taking part in the kingdom of God now, although the kingdom will not reach its full expression until sometime in the future. We are already in the kingdom, but we do not yet see it in its full glory. And so this may be a little confusing, but Zechariah, I think, is describing for us the coming messianic kingdom, but, but not, the full, not the fullness of it yet is not what we see. And, and yet the Bible, um, the Bible talks about the kingdom of God in two seemingly different ways. First, the kingdom of God, according to Scripture, is God's authority to rule. God's authority to rule. Sometimes we describe this as his sovereignty. He is in control of everything. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. And, and so one way that the Bible talks about God's kingdom is the kingdom is the fact that God is king of everything. God is king of everything. The kingdom of God is his power. But then also the Bible describes the kingdom of God as a realm or you could say a place where God rules and reigns and where everything is reflective of his rule and reign. So secondly, the kingdom is a realm where God reigns. These are the two primary ways that the scripture uses this phrase, kingdom of God. So when you place your faith in Christ, your life becomes reflective of the fact that God is king of everything. Right? Like his power is made manifest in your life in that through faith in Christ, you have passed from death to life. Right? God's power has been seen in bringing you to this place of born-againness, changing your, like, cosmic station in life from being a station of eternal death to a station of eternal life. God's kingdom in your life is the fact that he removes your sin and calls you a beloved child even though you don't deserve 
that. But your experience of the world and my experience of the world is not yet reflective of the realm where God rules and reigns and where everything is perfect, where everything is reflective of his rule and reign. Thus, you and I are living in light of the kingdom of God, his power through Christ, but we are not yet living fully in the kingdom of God, this realm where he rules and reigns. So I hope that makes sense. So we experience the implications of God's power in our lives, and we're living in God's power, but the world around us is not yet fully changed because of this. So, so this is what Paul means um, in the text we read first up this morning, it's what Paul means when he says that at present we see through a glass dimly or through a glass darkly, um, that we're, we're getting part of this now, but eventually we will see the whole picture. Eventually we will experience the full thing. And, and if you are experiencing this now, what this reveals to you is that there is more, even if you aren't experiencing it fully. At this present moment, this is why Jesus, by the way, calls on us to pray, Father, your kingdom come, right? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what Zechariah is describing for us here. There is an already in that Christ has literally come riding on a donkey. And for those who are in Christ, there is literal spiritual freedom and peace that has been ushered in. There is literal salvation. There is literal um, uh, forgiveness of sins that has been ushered in through Christ. And that is efficacious and powerful. But ultimately, Christ will return and he will usher in the fullness of God's kingdom. And then the experience will not be simply spiritual, right? The experience will also be physical. So this is what uh, Horatio Spafford was writing about in that old hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Um, when he said, Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. Like, he's describing the already but not yet. He's saying, I have faith in Christ now, and that faith has changed me, right? It is transformational, and it is powerful. But Lord, haste the day when that faith becomes my lived experience, fully and perfectly. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. Meaning, I'm describing the greatest day. I'm describing for you the greatest thing that could possibly happen is that I get to be a part of the fullness of the kingdom of God. The day when my faith becomes sight is this day when the fullness of God's kingdom is ushered in, and I get to not just live it in the spiritual sense, but I get to live it also in the physical sense. Dining at the Lord's table is not just sort of this metaphorical thing, but it's like a real present reality for me. So I want to give us three quick implications this morning. Uh, first of all, we, as the body of Christ, as the church, as followers of Jesus, we are not building, growing, or expanding God's kingdom. 
in, in our work, in doing what God has called us to do in our lives, we are not building, growing, or expanding the kingdom of God. And the reason why is because we are incapable of doing anything like that. God's kingdom is perfect. God's kingdom is complete. It does not need to be grown. It does not need to be changed. It does not need to be expanded. It does not need to be built. And he has not called us to do such a thing. And yet you hear people using this language all the time. When they're engaging in the work of ministry, you'll hear it called kingdom building work or kingdom expanding work, right? But that's not what God has called us to in Christ. So while it is perfectly correct to say that we are doing kingdom work if we are following the Lord, that work is not the work of building anything. God's kingdom is exactly as he would have it be right now. It does not need to be improved in any way. So that's not our work. What is our work? Two, our work is the work of revealing God's kingdom. Or you could say it's the work of unveiling God's kingdom. We can't expand or grow God's kingdom. What we can do is help other people see it. What we can do is help reveal it to other people. And we can't show them this because we don't even see this fully. Like we don't see the fullness of God's reign and rule, but we do see his power in our lives. We can experience his Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we do this, one, by declaring the gospel of Jesus, by, by sharing with people the truth of God's power and what God's power has accomplished through Christ. But then we also do it by demonstrating the gospel of Jesus as well. The New Testament calls us ambassadors of the kingdom. And what does an ambassador do? An ambassador lives in another country as an emissary for his or her home country, as a representative of his or her home country. An ambassador oftentimes will speak a completely different language than the country that they're living in, right? And, and their culture will be different, and their lifestyle will be different than the country that they're living in. And they exist there to be this marker, this signifier that points back to the culture that they are from, the country that they are from. And and what the New Testament says is that's who we are supposed to be. That's what our lives are supposed to be. That we're supposed to be people who have been changed by God's kingdom. And because we have been born again into this kingdom, we now exist in this world, which is not currently reflective of the fullness of God's rule and reign. We exist in this world as ambassadors of that kingdom, that our words and our lives and our actions should point people back to that. That is what he has sent us to do, to declare his gospel and to demonstrate his gospel to the world around us. And then third, I think one of the big things that we are to be doing is we are to be praying that God's kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven, that the fullness would be ushered in. I mean, this is basically how the Bible ends, if you've read to the end of Revelation, right? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, that this would be something that doesn't cause us trepidation or fear, even though it is unknown to us in some ways, but instead that it would be something that we would long for as followers of Christ, that our faith would grow and develop to the point where, man, Jesus really is my only hope. 
Jesus really is my only future. It's not going to be getting a better job or making more money or having a better house or having better stuff or this happening with our kids or having kids or any of those things that my only real hope in life and death is Christ. And that when that becomes true for me, increasingly so, that the thing that I would most come to long for is God's kingdom is for him to return, for, for, the, for the trump to resound, right? For the sky to be rolled back as a scroll and to see Christ descending. One of the things that the Bible talks a great deal about is worldliness. Um, and this Tuesday night, we're going to have our next book club dealing with the book Live No Lies, um, and, you know, quick commercial. I hope you guys will be there for that because it's really going to be a great time. But part of what that book deals with is worldliness. This idea that you, you have the devil, the enemy, but all he really does is, is lie to you. He, he whispers lies into your life. But so often the lies that he whispers to you play to your flesh. They, they play to disordered affections that are already within you, your own sin nature. So the devil's not creating sin in your life or making you sin. He's telling you lies that appeal to the sin nature that you already have within you. But then that gets affirmed by the world or by worldliness. Like this desire I have to sin gets affirmed by the culture around me or people around me, people who say, yeah, absolutely, you should do that. So, so in the case, um, as an example, uh, you know, the devil whispers to me that I should behave selfishly in a certain situation that appeals to me because I want to be number one in my own life. And then other people around me say, absolutely, you do you, whatever you want to do, like you should put yourself first. Like, so this is how this kind of plays out. So the Bible talks a lot about worldliness. And what it says is, don't, Paul says, don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the idea here is that as an ambassador of another place, as an ambassador of a kingdom, you're, you're meant to live in this world, but not of this world. Like that you are, you're supposed to like stick out at like a sore thumb in the midst of this culture. Hopefully not in an offensive way, hopefully in a way that's deeply compelling to people, but in a way that is decidedly different. Uh, Lindsay and I watched uh, The Matrix the other night. And um, I haven't seen this movie since I was in high school, probably. And I had forgotten a lot about it, and we were watching it the other night. And, um, you know, even though this isn't the point at all of the filmmakers, I mean, there's just so many gospel-like connections in this movie because it's about a group of people who have been awakened to what is actually real and true, right? And they've, they've stepped out of this one world where everybody's living under this facade, and, and they actually have stepped into this other world that, that's the real and true world um, and where everybody isn't being controlled by machines. And yet the world that they are, are awakened to is terrible, right? It's like this bombed out, smogged out, like shell of, of earth 
where uh, everybody's dead and machines control everything and the sky's been blotted out and all this kind of stuff and they're eating mush and they're constantly being hunted and it's just a terrible place. But, but it's like real, it's like true. And, and one of the parts of the story that I forgot about was that there is, there's a guy on their team who has been awakened, like he's, he's no longer in the matrix but yet the world that they're living in, the true world, is so terrible that he decides to betray everybody else to go back into the matrix. To, like, he would rather live under the illusion, he would rather live under the facade and live a life that's comfortable and peaceful, where he gets what he wants, and, and, and he makes this deal with the, with the machines, and he's, he says, I want to be rich, and I, like, I want all these things, right? And, and I thought, man, this is so applicable to our situation because we are living in this world as ambassadors of this other place. We're living in this place that's not our home. And, and yet, it, what Scripture tells us is if we are not careful, this place that is not our home can harm us because it is constantly trying to pull our affection away from Christ. It's, it's constantly trying to place our attention not on Jesus, but on ourselves or on money or on worldly things. And what happens so often is people decide, you know what? That just sounds easier than this Jesus stuff. Like giving myself over to these other things sounds like a better life. And yet what Jesus tells us is there are people in his day who are doing that very thing. And what Jesus says, I, I tell you, they already have their reward. Meaning any good things that they're going to experience are the things that they're experiencing right now by going after the worldly things that they have gone after. And what Jesus is telling us through his gospel is that the fullness of the kingdom of God, even though we don't see it completely right now or experience it completely right now, that it is a treasure that is far greater than anything this world could ever give us. And Jesus' teaching constantly alludes to this, whether it's the parable of the treasure buried in a field or the parable of the pearl of great price. It's the idea that the kingdom of God is so significant and so valuable that it is worth you literally selling everything you have in order to attain it. It's worth you giving away everything you have in order to get that because it is of such great value. And yet in the moment, the world can seem so much more appealing than this thing that we don't see fully right now. Are you guys following me? And so the teaching of Jesus points us towards these notions of patience, and perseverance and endurance while we are living in this place that is not our home, where we exist as ambassadors. And this is why abiding in Christ, abiding in the vine, is of the utmost importance. Because Jesus says, if you are not rooted in me, if that isn't like your constant daily experience, if I am not the place where you find strength and encouragement to persevere and move onward. Um, and also, I would say, through the church as well. It's one of the ways that Christ encourages us and strengthens us. 
then don't be surprised when you kind of wake up one day and you're way out in no man's land because you've chased after worldly things. And it's why it's so important that we be in relationship with each other, but even more than that, that we be daily in the teaching of Jesus, in the scriptures, in prayer, in the practice of spiritual disciplines, together as the body of Christ. So let me, let me stop there for this morning. Next week, we're going to pick up as Zechariah continues, and Zechariah will begin to move from just telling us about this coming messianic king and his kingdom to really describing for us what that kingdom is going to look like. So let's go to God in prayer this morning and give him thanks for the truth of his word. Father, we thank you for your grace and love. And as we are living in this already but not yet place, we pray, Father, that you would truly give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, that we would be so convinced through your Holy Spirit of what, you've, what you have accomplished for us on the cross, that you are this conquering king, that you have um, vanquished death. God, that you have conquered all of our enemies. May we be so convinced of this, Lord, that our response would be to truly give you everything, to make you the center of our lives, for you to be the one that our lives revolve around and that we abide in from day to day. God, give us hearts that long for you, not the things of this world, that long for your kingdom, not for material possessions or money. God, truly awaken us to this pearl of great price. And God, help us, even though we don't see your kingdom fully, help us to be your ambassadors, to declare your gospel, to demonstrate the way of Christ, the goodness of the gospel for other people as we live our lives as your emissaries in this place. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would y'all stand with us this morning?